Hello, I'm Taylor Romans. And I'm Matthew Burrett. And this is Hard Beeswax, Experiences in Waldorf Education. We are individuals who are a part of this global educational movement. And we want to be clear that we are only speaking from our own experiences and from our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. This week on Hard Beeswax, we find Taylor and Matthew in conversation with Douglas Gerwin, the executive director of both the Center for Anthroposophy and the Research Institute for Waldorf Education. Today they discuss his personal Waldorf education experience, his rediscovery of it as a surprised teacher, cursive writing, pedagogical law, and of course, hard beeswax. Okay, so diving in, Douglas, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, here. thank you for being here. This is, um, you are, you're definitely one of the, uh, the, the, the key individuals we imagined talking to when this idea was in its early days, and it's really a pleasure to have you here with us. So happy to be here, especially with the name of a program like this. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think about the title Hard Beeswax when you first heard about it? I'll tell you, I, I tried that idea out on my wife, who's also a Waldorf uh, high school teacher, and she burst into laughter. So she <laughs> immediately the significance of this metaphor, and it's a great choice of metaphor. I couldn't think of a better one. I'm going to steal it. <laughs> Some, someday, Douglas, will share a list of about the 70 titles we threw around before we landed on Hard Beeswax. <laughs> <laughs> so, Douglas, at, at this point in the Waldorf movement in the United States, you are someone who is very much known for being on the more kind of almost in a way of, of kind of this guiding figure for so many schools, someone who frequently comes in to offer advice, especially to Waldorf high schools. But what some people may not know about you is that you are a Waldorf alum yourself. What was your graduating class from the Toronto Waldorf School, right? Well, it was actually the Waldorf School of Garden City, uh, and it was the class of 1968. Wow. That was quite a year, I have to say. <laughs> Not just because of us, but world events were really moving that year. What a time to be 18. Could you speak to us a little bit about how you originally came to Waldorf education? Well, I mean, the simple answer is I came to Waldorf education by being born. <laughs> <laughs> my mother was a teacher, and she also trained to be a Waldorf teacher, uh, primarily because she wanted to be my first grade teacher. And that's what happened. So the our home, the third floor of our home in Ottawa in Canada, back in the 1950s, the last millennium, we can say, uh, was converted into a tiny little, literally one-room schoolhouse with six and then later, I think, ten or so little students, first grade and second grade. Uh, and I was one of those first little sprogs. <laughs> after, after two years then, my mother closed that school because she recognized that it wasn't really enough to have one teacher because you have to appreciate she was obviously the first grade class teacher, but she was also the French teacher and the German teacher. Uh, she taught Eurythmy, and she played the piano for the Eurythmists, who was herself. And of course, <laughs> circumstance, she was the faculty chair. So all of that was good for two years, and then after she figured, okay, this needs a bigger mix, and therefore she shut the school down. With the consequence, I then went to public school in Canada for a year, 
And thereafter, then we, the whole family, moved from Canada to uh, Long Island outside New York City. And then I went to what is now called the Waldorf School of Garden City, had a slightly different name in those days. And that then I entered in grade four, went the way, right the way through from fourth grade until 12th grade, had a wonderful high school experience. We can talk about that later. Uh, and graduated from there. So really, I can't claim to have discovered Waldorf education apart from just discovering my mother by being <laughs> born her. Did you, were there elements in your home that now looking back you can recognize as, as having flavors of being qualities of a Waldorf home? Right? Well, the wooden it, toys, the silks, did you, was that what your surroundings looked like as a child? We had it all um, because my parents were both students of anthroposophy. They'd come to it separately before they were married. Uh, and therefore, I was brought up with all the all the trimmings, you might say, uh, including then the, not only what you described there, but the fact that we used to go hunting for organic food. <laughs> this is the back of the 1950s. Wow. My mother had the habit of going to the local grocery store armed with a Geiger counter. Wow. <laughs> She could read the radioactivity off the veggies. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And because of that, we then went looking for organic food, which in those days was not sold commercially. Mm -hmm. You had to go to a friend who had a garage and bound on the back door of the garage with an entrance, and that's how you went in. It was all legal. It just wasn't commercial. So in that sense, I grew up with all of the you know, the trimmings, including anthroposophical medicine and all the things that go with that. Uh, in that sense, I had a very healthy childhood, partly because it was so organic. Wow. So you were hunt were you hunting animals for meat as well? <laughs> we weren't vegetarians, but we did live in a city. Ah. And the hunting was limited by law, if not by vegetation. <laughs> they they wouldn't um, send young Douglas out to wrangle a goose for dinner <laughs> from the local pond. Well they tried, but I failed because I couldn't swim. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So did you have a senior project as well? In the Garden City School. Yeah. Now, this is interesting because you're referring to a, a, a feature of all of education that was common in Europe, but didn't really come to America until later. Ah. So in my senior year, we had all kinds of things that you would associate with that final year of high school in the Waller School, but we didn't have senior project as such. So, um, you know, I feel a bit bereft there, but uh, it was just one thing that wasn't part of our story. Yeah. So as as a student in a Waldorf school, what was your what was your academic? What were your academic inclinations? Were you all around enthusiastic about all subjects? Were there some you gravitated toward others you perhaps felt some antipathy for? What was your what kind of uh, student were you in that way? Well, I can say one unusual thing, because this is based on a survey we did, that is the Research Institute did of Waldorf graduates some years ago. And we asked those students, was there anything that you disliked at the time, you were a student, but now think about differently? And you can imagine the number one response. Eurythmy. <laughs> I was the exception because I actually liked Eurythmy. Um, and I had all kinds of Eurythmy that I had not only in the school, but I even had therapeutic Eurythmy for, uh, for posture and all kinds of things. Today, there's Eurythmy for just about everything, including, by the way, teeth and gums. Didn't get that, but I had a lot of other stuff. So in that sense, I had an affection for Eurythmy and by extension for the arts generally. Maybe my favorite art, though, was music. I always had a bent towards the performing arts rather than the so-called fine arts or practical arts. Uh, so that was one sort of tilt I had, and therefore I, I got involved with, with music and ended up uh, leading the choir in my senior year a little bit as a kind of assistant conductor. Um, that was the one aspect. 
And then the other aspect was I was always very interested in science. Mm-hmm. Not so much that I was a scientist or intending to make a career of science. It's just, for me, science posed some really, really good questions. Questions, for example, around imagination, which we can talk about if you're interested later on today. Uh, but nonetheless, in terms of uh, subjects, that was something of real is sort of prominence for me. That didn't mean, however, that I majored in science in college. I did science in graduate school, but not so much in college, uh, because obviously history and English were more, more my sort of humanitarian or humanitarian humanities bent uh, when I was a student after graduating from high school. Mm-hmm. As you would expect on your question already infers it, if you go to a Waldorf school, if you don't love everything, you probably haven't understood the significance of the education. Mm-hmm. So that I can't look back and say, oh, I really like this, I really like that. I can say I like this teacher, I like that teacher. That's different, of course. Yes. But in terms of subject matter, I would say that I was really well served by many teachers who brought many different perspectives to the education uh, without trying to ram it down our throats. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I can There were a few things I didn't, I didn't go for. Um, I was not a particularly happy softball or baseball player. <laughs> and the reason was I was left-handed. Mm. And my parents, maybe I, maybe I played a part in this, but whoever is responsible, they bought me a left-handed mitt, that is to say a mitt for the left hand. Oh. That is a right-handed mitt in the left hand, which means that if I stood in left field, which I usually was relegated towards, uh, then I waited for the ball to arrive. And if it arrived, and if I was lucky enough to catch it... Then you had to throw it. I had to take off the mitt and then throw the ball with my left hand and therefore allow lots of home runs on the opposite team. That was not my favorite subject. Uh, and you know, there's a bit like that. But I will say that, it, <laughs> to, to sum all this up, that because of the, the kind of well-roundedness of the wall of curriculum, it's very difficult for me to say what was my favorite because really I loved it all with a few exceptions I mentioned. Yeah. I'm curious about the timeline of the Waldorf movement in the United States, right? Because it was something that began in Germany and then spread from there. At this point, were there were most of your teachers, had they been trained in Europe and then come to the United States? Or was there training in the United States happening at that time? I know probably as someone who had parents who who were anthroposophically involved and inclined, I bet you have some awareness of that. From that time, yes. I'm, I'm just curious of the greater timeline, because at this point, we almost take for granted that your teacher could have been trained in any number of locations around the United States. But I'm wondering if that was different in the time when you were in grades in high school. That was quite different. And before I get to that part of your question, the first part, it's interesting to recognize that, yes, Wall of Education began in uh, the United States already in the late 1920s. So relatively soon after the start of the first Waller School in 1919, it did then spread in small numbers to North America, first U.S. and then Canada, eventually also to Mexico. Um, however, uh, what was interesting was that these Waller Schools in the United States, and very few of them in the 20s and 30s, and even into the 40s, they stayed open during World War II, obviously. Waller mm. mm. Schools in Germany were all closed. Eventually, all of them were closed. With the consequence, you can say that the some of the longest-standing Waldorf schools are not in Germany; they're in the United States. Oh, interesting. Hmm. And other parts of Europe too, to be sure. So, in that sense, we have quite a pedigree there. So, the growth, nonetheless, of Waldorf schools in North America is slow. Nineteen um, forties, very few. Fifties, one or two. Nineteen sixties, it began to grow. 
um, I went to was only one of maybe half a dozen high schools, if that, in the 1960s. And then it really began to take off in the 70s and then blossomed in the 90s. Mm -hmm. The second part of your question about the training of teachers, um, of course, it is true that some teachers had fled from Germany or had fled or just emigrated from other parts of Europe, having been trained prior to World War II there. but I would say more typical of the school I went to, and frankly, the other few schools such as they were, we, as they say, rolled our own. We grew our own Waldorf teachers. And certainly the school that I attended was very much populated by teachers who had been kind of selected by the faculty chair of the school and then trained on site. Hmm. Uh, and this, uh, this um, founding teacher, John Gardner, who then became also something of a mentor to me, uh, he had a real eye for teachers. Uh, there was one person, for example, who was the school bus driver. And John Gardner recognized in this man potential for being a science teacher. Hmm. So he hired him, put him in the high school, and he became one of our beloved science teachers, having not had specifically a background in teaching science before he got it. But he had an eye for detail. He had an eye for precision. He was meticulous in his correction of our grammar, not just our science reports, but the grammar of the science reports. He said, you know, the difference between an I and an E could be the difference in chemistry between life and death. (laughs) (laughs) No, the former, no, which which substances I'm referring to. In that sense, he had this this eye for being a teacher. And because he hadn't got the, let's call it classical training in science, he was much more open to the approach of Waldorf schools towards science, which, as you know, is much more based upon your own senses, your own experience, so-called phenomenological experiences. Uh, And out of that, then he developed a very lively, living, and sometimes uh, exciting because dangerous approach to chemistry and physics in the high school. So, as I say, to answer the question there, we had a good crew of teachers, but they had many of them been trained either in another Waldorf school or on site in mm. the school where I was studying in Garden City. Yeah. Amazing. So then maybe a segue between my question and Matthew's question is when you came to the end of your Waldorf High School education, what were what were the options laid out before you? What were maybe the expectations coming to you from your parents and your family about what you would do next? And then how did you embark on maybe your higher education journey? Well, in my case, it was a bit unusual for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first was that my parents, both coming from uh, Europe, uh, they decided to move back home just after I graduated from high school. So then the question was, well, what do I do? Do I stay in North America and have a good time? Or do I go back with them to, in this case, to Britain and pursue my college studies there? And so I compromised. Um, I had one year at university in Canada, which was a kind of stepping stone then to England, because uh, because I'd been to a Waldorf school, the universities in England were willing to recognize my American credentials rather than having to submit myself to the British ones, which are much much more limited in, in, in what they demand. So the short answer is I spent a year in Canada, uh, had a wonderful year. In fact, I had such a wonderful year, I thought I might stay there. But then I realized something else. That is, in those days, and boy, it has short change now, but in those days, uh, university education was basically free. Hmm. Especially my parents were not particularly wealthy, and my parents were retiring, and therefore they didn't, didn't have that much. So for me to go to a university in the United States, forget that, to go to university in Canada, well, cheaper but still money, was nothing compared to a free education in England. Hmm. And so for that reason, also because I felt I needed a bit of a 
what should we call it, a classical kick in the butt, um, because mm -hmm. I kind of scudded my way through education with, with lots of delight, uh, not too much serious study, that I should just submit myself to the discipline of the system in England, which was very, very different uh, from the systems in other parts of the world. So in short, I did then go back to England and I then got my undergraduate degree in, in Britain, uh, having, however, no idea what I would do with it. Hmm. I, I was used to education being fun. Mm -hmm. In fact, a quick, a quick story there, go back to, to Canada for a moment. In my first year of studies, I had my first experience of a really large class, like, you know, 250 people crammed in an auditorium. The professor little dot down the front of the room there. And I remember on the first day of the classes, he's looking out at this sea of people with a sense of helplessness and saying, I cannot possibly get to know all of you. Uh, the best I can do is to offer office hours in the course of the semester. So I looked up and down the rows and did a bit of mathematics to do the calculation. And no sooner was that class done that I zoomed off to his office to secure my, my interview with him during that semester. Halfway, halfway through the semester, roughly. Okay, my turn came and I had a conversation with him, which I can still remember to this day, a very lively conversation. He was head of department of psychology at the time. And uh, about halfway through the conversation, he let drop the fact that I was the only student who had signed up for a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and that keyed me into something because I had assumed that every student would learn only by knowing personally the teacher. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was the beginnings of a little dawning that the education I'd had was kind of different and if not weird, at least it was unusual. Uh, but it didn't spark much further than that. So I went on, on through university. And when I finished university, I did have some, of course, exposure to all of education with my parents and the books of Rudolf Steiner and so on. But it all seemed too good to be true. Interesting. And I thought, yeah, Maybe it's too good to be true because I don't know anything else. Mm -hmm. I've grown up with organic carrots, but that doesn't mean that organic carrots are good. So after graduating from university, I decided I would try a whole different life. Uh, I had no ideas what I would do, but I had a good idea what I would not do. And this is common, by the way, in my generation compared to the previous generations. There was an interesting survey done of seniors of a generation before me who asked, what did you intend to do with your life? And a very large majority gave an answer having something to do with the careers or professions of their parents. Mm -hmm. And this, my generation and mine was the first, yours I think much more so than mine, but even beginning of my generation, that magical turning point of 1967, 68, so the year I graduated from high school roughly, that question then became the opposite. You ask people from that generation and younger, what do you intend to do with your life? They will typically say, I have no idea except not what my parents did. Yeah. yeah, right. I was at the cusp of that, the beginning of that. So I knew what my mother was, therefore I would not become, it didn't occur to me to become a teacher. So I went into a whole different career having to do with broadcasting and journalism and travel and, and that kind of work in Europe uh, for Reuters News Agency, uh, also then some television work. Uh, and that was what I did in the daytime. And then because I was interested in a lot of other things, I had a kind of second career running kind of nighttime career, or at least the more likely vacation career uh, running, which was working in the travel business, specializing in those groups that were doing musical tours from America, mostly from colleges in America, uh, through Europe. Interesting. So that was, I ran that music festival in a beautiful place of St. Moritz in the high mountains of the Alps in Switzerland during the summertime and when I had vacation time. 
So that was how I got started. And it was really that then which I launched with no idea what I would do, except I knew that this was my transitory career. This was not my final career. I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. So pushing ahead now to my late 20s, they've been often people begin to get serious, get married, they have children, they put down roots, that kind of thing. Uh, I wasn't quite that ready for that yet, but I was ready for some further studies. And in that context, then, I found different universities, one more classical in, in Scotland, and then this very unusual program uh, way in the in the middle of uh, the desert, so they seemed, except it's not the desert, it's Texas. Uh, <laughs> there outside Dallas, right next door to the Cowboys Stadium, was a small little university that had a graduate program that got me really interested because it combined phenomenology depth psychology, and literature. Huh. And only when I arrived at this university, having made other choices not to carry on with the journalism, when I arrived at the University of Dallas, outside Dallas, in Irving, Texas, mm -hmm. uh, I discovered that in the faculty there was a little coterie of university professors who were secretly studying Rudolf Steiner. Secretly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because of what he said about religion. That is, this is a practice religion, and this was a religious university. Nonetheless, in the corner of their offices and their cupboards, they were reading specifically about uh, Waldorf education. And when they got wind of the fact that I was an exhibit of Waldorf education, then, of course, they invited me in to talk about that and to see what's it like on the other part of the other side of the furniture, so to speak. Uh, and then that ended up my giving seminars to graduate students and undergraduates. And eventually then they turned around and said, well, would I be become a teacher at the university? Again, having no ambitions to do that. My idea was quite different. But a series of often happening or karmic interactions and surprises and the fact that all the books that I bought for medical school, which was my intention, got stolen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> telling me something here, I better pay attention and look at the educational thing. So in short, uh, kind of by the back door, I ended up teaching, but at university level rather than in high school. And to finish this part of the story then, uh, as how I got to the wall of education, which was really your question, in the course of these conversations and also then teaching, especially uh, postgraduate students and undergraduate students, I noticed that a lot of my time as a teacher at the university was helping students unlearn a huge amount of crud that they'd picked up along the way. Hmm. Stupid half-baked ideas, ideas that are 150 years out of date, things that people are supposed to have said, like Darwin is supposed to have said. He never talked about things, things people assume he said. Uh, and where then did these students, these poor undergraduates, where did they learn all this nonsense? And the answer was mostly in high school. And also from the few... We didn't have internet in those days, but certainly from television and a few other things like that. But essentially, most of what these kids were, were, were labored with or burdened with coming into university was information they picked up along the way, mostly in high school. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, if I want to teach as opposed to unteach, I should be teaching in high school rather mm -hmm. than in college. Mm -hmm. That was the major step to say, I'm going to move downward, shall we say, from graduate school and undergraduate, move a step down, actually up, but on this down on the surface to teaching in high school. And so out of that then came the resolve, okay, if I move to high school, which high school? Well, given my experience with all of us, that seemed to be the obvious place to go. And because of these professors at the University of Dallas and their secret interest in the world of education, I had also then begun to revisit 
some of these subjects which I'd long neglected, never even thought about Steiner or these ideas of education. But through these professors, I began to say, wait a minute, there really is something very, very unusual mm. about the approach to teaching. And here I am now trying to work my way into a system of education. And so much of it is the opposite of what I experienced when I was a student at the Waldo School. So to cut to the quick, I decided if I'm going to teach, I'll teach in high school. If it's high school, it's going to have to be a wall of high school. So I wrote in those days to all, I think it was six wall of high schools in those, in those days. And they all said, nope, we don't need you. We're, we're fine. Times have changed. <laughs> <laughs> in, those days, in those days, there weren't that many positions, and those who were in the positions hung on to them. So I almost abandoned the plan. And then it often happens in a wall of school at the very last minute came an offer to teach in a board, uh, boarding high school in New Hampshire. Uh, and that was the only offer I got out of the six that were available. And then that's how I ended up moving then from Texas across country to New Hampshire, where I ended up teaching a Timoin school, this Waldorf boarding school, also day school, for some 20 or so years. Wow. wow. But I, I totally did not know the Texas connection in there. That's incredible. Well, if I'm not feeling well or if I'm very tired, you may begin to take my Texan accent, but otherwise I keep it under wraps. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like for you? You know, something that comes up on the podcast is, you know, us as students who received a Waldorf education, the receiving is very, very different than the full picture a teacher in a Waldorf school is holding kind of in their mind as they are delivering a lesson, for example. So how was that transition for you going from being a Waldorf student, right, looking back on a memory of this is what this education is, versus then coming into a school and approaching it from the other side of, okay, here's the information that I'm armed with now that I'm a teacher? Well, I would love to think it was that simple. <laughs> <laughs> But as you have discovered, no doubt yourself, it doesn't matter if you're trained or not. Uh, you don't really know what you're up to do and what to do until you step into the classroom. That's when you really begin to learn. True. Yeah. That, for me, is one of the secrets of Wall of Education. Because if I think about how this Wall of Education got started, we just sometimes don't realize just how revolutionary it was at the time, 1919. But frankly, how revolutionary it still is. You know, on the surface, you can say, well... If the, in the first Waldorf school, Joseph Steiner made various uh, conditions. And at the time, they were really shocking. He said, for example, and you know this, he said, I want this school to be co-ed. That was unheard of in those days. He said uh, other things too. He said, I want these students now. I can use modern language to describe it. They didn't have the language back then. They had different language. But we now would call it, we would say this, and uh, Steiner said the equivalent in German. He said, I want the class teachers to go through looping, that is to stay with their students for more than just a year and then pass off to the next teacher, as many as six or seven or eight years of looping. Again, a revolutionary idea at the time, and now is gaining certain popularity, although there are problems with it, uh, it's gaining popularity because people recognize what happens when a child is able to stay with an adult for an extended period of time. It doesn't have to be a teacher, it can be a garage mechanic, it can be a coach, it can be, yes, a parent. Somebody who is a steady presence, an adult presence in a child's life has huge benefits. We begin to see it medically these days. Okay, that was an idea that Steiner had. Then another one. 
he said, these students, they should learn, again, now modern language, not the Steiner language of the age. He said, students should learn in modules. We, we call them main lessons, but they should learn in extended periods of time, long lessons, two hours and so forth, or three or four or six weeks in the lower school, shorter perhaps in the high school. And again, at the time, that was thought to be a stupid idea. How can you possibly keep kids' attention for that long? Well, we'll come to that in just a minute. So then something else. Also radically in his time, and frankly, is still radical in our time because we haven't really learned how to do it yet. And that is what we in the in the educational uh, industry, is that the word, or profession, call site-based management. Hmm. That, that the people working in the classroom, the people working on the site of the school, they should have responsibility for the education as opposed to outside bodies and other people who could tell you from a distance what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Again, starting insisting on that for the first wall of school, and it's still a radical idea today. There's a longer list, but I'll keep it short, because there's one other area I think which is important to mention, and that has to do with assessment. Rudolf Steiner was very clear that, as one of my colleagues put it, um, the best way to have students forget something is to test them on it. (laughs) You study for the test, and that's a way of clearing the mind, as it should. So that is not the way to assess in a way that's lasting. How do you assess? And there again, Rodostana had some very clear ideas, which are now beginning to gain some currency through a Dana Foundation study that we can turn out. And that is to say, you are more successful with assessment if the assessment is conducted through the arts. Hmm. Now call it portfolio or project assessment, especially in the high schools. Yeah. So you do something or you, you make something or you produce something and that's what you're assessed on, not how you respond to somebody else's questions on their on the exam that they set. Um, mm. That's based on a textbook that you were supposed to have read. No, this is learning by doing. In this case, doing it through through the arts. Mm. Last thing just to mention, and this again, you know, is so part of wall of life, I didn't realize that it didn't exist in every wall of school. And that is the more you learn in nature, the more you learn about everything. Mm. Nature is a nature is a living metaphor for morality. You know, think only the symbiotic relationship between a little insect and a little plant. That's is not moral in the plant sense, but translate that into the human symbiotic relationships and that's the basis of morality so the idea that you would learn as much as you can in the natural setting is again part of world of life and i didn't know it different and yet afterwards i realized how how extraordinary it was to have an education of that form so these are some of the things i discovered and became conscious of when i began to teach but not by being taught to do that or told to do that it was too early there weren't Actually, in those days, there wasn't a high school teacher training program. That's something I started much later. Uh, but rather just to learn out of your experience, to learn out of what you do. Mm-hmm. And that's perhaps the most radical thing of all in world of education and possibly the thing we're still struggling to learn. Yeah. And let me, tell, let me put it in the most radical way I can. Again, without wishing to be critical, I think it's safe to say that most folks and even most teachers have the idea that their job is to go into a classroom laden with what they have, in some form of skill and knowledge, what they have, and their job is to transmit it from them to students who don't know. This is called instruction. And it's the right word if you understand a little Latin. Because what does the word instruction mean? Two words, in 
and structus. A structus is a small pebble. Instruction is taking all the rocks you have in your system, opening your mind, taking the, rev the, the, the rocks, imposing them on somebody else's mind, closing off, testing it to make sure the rocks arrive, and you're done. That's instruction, learning by telling somebody else what you know. And wouldn't you know it, in the wall of schools, it's the opposite. Hmm. And it's a crazy idea. I'm almost scared to say it in public, but since you're wall of as I am, I'll risk it. The idea, and in some sense, one has to ask how deep or how high is this idea as an ideal. The idea is that you, as the teacher, go into the classroom, and then you watch, and you listen, and you learn for the students to tell you what to say, because the kids already know. <laughs> That's critical. And you can ask the question, how the heck did you arrive at that agreement? Well, that's another conversation about the night. But for the moment, suffice it to say, this radical idea that as a teacher, you, of course, have your background, you have your knowledge, how else could it be? But that's not the point of teaching. Your task as a teacher is to go into the classroom, I'll put it differently now, your task is to go into the classroom and learn from the students. Mm -hmm. Because they, at some deep subconscious level, have come into the world knowing what they need to learn. Yeah. A very radical idea. And if you sell it to the to parents who pay tuition, they may take their kids out of the school. I'll do the you're kidding me. The, the, the kids are going to teach the teachers. Why why pay tuition for that? But at a deeper level, at a deeper level, it is fundamentally, I think, correct that all education, as Aristotle once described it, all education not only proceeds by mimesis, by imitation. But all education proceeds as self-education. Yeah. And at a minimum, we can say that kids teach themselves the most important things. Mm -hmm. They teach themselves how to stand up. You do not do that for them. In fact, they don't even imitate the way you, the adult, stands up. You know, adult stands up so. And the kid stands up with the butt first. And then the rest <laughs> screams. No adult does that. <laughs> The kids are not imitating that. They have learned somehow inwardly, and it's a very deep experience. They've learned inwardly how to stand up. Yeah. And you can go to various other things with language and with so forth and other experiences. The fundamental things we learn either in kindergarten, as they say in the book, uh, or they are really self-taught. And that notion of self-education, I think, lies at the fundament of Waldorf. And if you want to understand some of the things we do, you have to understand that as a basic supposition of what the teacher thinks is going on when she or he enters the classroom. Yeah, I mean, that just requires such a deep level of listening to your students and, and, a, and an act of faith. And I think trust, trust in yourself, right? And I, I'm just so, so curious, you know, kind of broadening the conversation beyond, you know, you as an individual and, and how... I think it's very challenging. Something we've talked about before is how to how to explain to the greater human population what it is that a Waldorf school is trying to do, right? And it seems like so many things get lost in translation. And I recall when I was a child, the the verbiage used by the school where I was it was experience based education, hands on learning, and those at the time were not terms that were being widely used. Now, every single charter school is using those words to describe what they're doing. And 
I think there's this real fear in Waldorf schools of exactly the scenario you played out of the fear is that if you say that to a tuition paying parent, they're going to run away, right? Because it sounds so radical, like you are saying. So could you speak a little bit to this, you know, this kind of conundrum that faces Waldorf schools and how, how do you say what you do? in a way that maybe is accessible to someone who doesn't have all of the depth of anthroposophical background to put the statements of what is done in a Waldorf classroom in context? Well, the good news is that just so everybody went to school, that is, everybody has an experience of having been in an educational institution of some form or other, even if they were homeschooled, Mm -hmm. with some supposition about what experience learning was. If somebody puts a question about what is world of education, the first thing that I want to know is what is the question behind that question? Hmm. Because usually another question motivating this inquiry. It's very rare that somebody would ask like in a cocktail party, well, what's world of education? No, there's usually another reason why they're asking that question. And if you, if you can tap into that reason, the chances are, again, wall of approach. The person you ask will give you the answer rather than you having to supply it yourself. And if you can tease out or pull out what is in them, usually they will answer their own question. Now, having said that, that will often then lead to real questions about Waldorf. And they would say, why do you do this? Or why do you do that? Or how is this different from that? And so forth. Now you're getting down to brass tacks. And depending upon the question they ask, you know how to respond. Because you're speaking to their experience and possibly their puzzlement about their experience, rather than bringing all the knowledge you have and I can't wait to share with you, buddy. Stand back, sit down, give the last big drink here. I'm about to pour into you the whole story. No, they really are not that interested. They are trying to express something out of themselves and their own puzzlement with their life or how they learn or how they can learn, how they can improve their learning. And this is where you, the real question of what of education can be answered. Because frankly, a person has a real question about education, I would say, what of education has a medical and a real response. Hmm. I realize I don't actually know what did you teach at High Mowing? What, <laughs> what subjects did you teach? Well, remember what I said earlier about being a Wallow student? You have to love everything? Y- yes. <laughs> uh, that condition of being a Wallow teacher, by the way, Brother Stan had four conditions, and that was one of them. You have to be interested in everything large and small, as he put it. So, coming out of Warlow School, yes, I had all kinds of interests. Uh, and I discovered that sometimes I was most successful in university at tackling a subject I knew least about. Hmm. Yeah. Because I had the appetite, I had the interest, I had the emptiness, shall we say, that could then take something in. And so the same really applies then when I became a Warlow teacher myself. Yeah, I applied to the school and I was interested in teaching in a Warlow School. I didn't particularly care what I taught. I just wanted to teach them at all at school. So I'll take what I can get. So what did I get? I got teaching German because I'm half German. I had never taught German before. In fact, I barely spoke it. Didn't speak it very well. I had a kind of conversational child-like command of German, but I couldn't spell and I couldn't study. I could not speak in these uh, academic phrases that uh, the German has if you elevate yourself beyond Kaffee uh, Klatsch into the more sort of classical German style. So I had to learn German on the fly, roughly a day or so before I taught it. And again, that, that worked very well. 
because I knew German. I was half German myself. I had the German in me, uh, and by some help and a few friends and a few songs and so on, uh, and uh, understanding grammar from an abstract way, I was able then to bring something fresh mm-hmm. to the student. Mm-hmm. Fresh to me. It wasn't new to me, but it was fresh to me in, in a cognitive understanding. So that's how I started, with no in- ambition of being a lifelong German teacher, however. And I made that pretty clear fairly early on that I was uh, interested in things as well. And the only way to be interested in other things as well, as you know, is to teach main lessons. Yeah. Mm. You teach a lesson, you're switching off, as you know, every three or four weeks to a different subject. And that's what I really wanted to do. And therefore, the question was well, which main lessons are available? Uh, and luckily, I had some education myself in the classical traditions, and so history in English was closer to, closer to my wheelhouse, as they say. But as I said earlier this, in this conversation, my one of my primary interests was science. And because I was not a practicing lab scientist, I had to work hard to understand it. And therefore, because I worked hard at it, uh, I taught more successfully at it. Mm-hmm. So as all that, I ended up teaching biology and then collective geometry, some mathematical main lessons. Uh, while keeping going. And uh, that would have been the end of the story, but for the fact there is one inevitable thing that happens to just about any world of teacher if you survive long enough and successfully enough. And that is you'll be asked to go into administration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a step that out of these various teachings, then I was asked to, be, uh, to step into the into faculty chairing of the school, which I then did for quite some years. And would, that would have been the end of the story too except for the fact that if you are in that kind of administrative role of a school, a wall of school, then you discover one thing or many things, but one thing you discover for sure is that much of your summer vacation uh, is robbed from you because you're looking for teachers. Hmm. Yep. That's really familiar, huh? Yep, very, that, very much so. That, <laughs> that became my summer hobby. And at a certain point, I said, what is the problem here? Why can't I find teachers to teach next year or year after in this water school? And finally, the answer came back to me, well, because there's no high school teacher training program. Hmm. Okay, in addition to teaching and then being a faculty chair at my school, some somebody has got to start a high school teacher training program. So that's what I then did. And that's why I moved then into the further phase of my career which was not just teaching then, but actually then preparing themselves, even like yourselves, uh, for being teachers also. How, how did you approach that challenge? What were, you know, because you, you it, sa- it sounds like you really approached teaching in a Waldorf school with this kind of beautiful, open-hearted, you know, I am, I'm ready to take on what comes to me. And how how did then you approach the teacher training? What what were some of your guiding thoughts as you started putting it together structurally and envisioning what what do these teachers need, right, before we send them into the classroom and, and what information do I need to provide them? Or do yeah. I want to provide them, right? Because... <laughs> yeah. Well, I think a couple of things helped me a great deal. Um, one of course, colleagues, a conversation with colleagues, that's just a very good beginning. But apart from that, uh, there were a couple of things that I was able to pick up because I was giving them, well, before I started this teacher training program, I was involved with various conferences and, and teacher conferences and so forth. And there, over the coffee urn or over the water jar, wherever it is, uh, you begin to hear what the struggles of the teachers are, especially the experienced teachers. And what soon became clear to me was, especially now in high school, it's a different bit with the lower school, but in the high school especially, it became painfully obvious that many Waldorf high school teachers come with expertise in a subject. 
Hmm. Subject is, can I say, encrusted in convention, in habitual thinking, in presuppositions, sometimes even prejudices, uh, and not a whole lot of artistic life unless they summon it out of themselves. And therefore, they come into the high school teaching with all this stuff, and they feel almost a kind of a desperate um, obligation to pass the stuff on to the kids in the class. Again, the idea of instruction. And therefore, this gesture of instruction bedevils high school teachers. It also bedevils others, but especially high school teachers coming out of these often university, high-powered university, high experience and expertise training, but not this ability to listen, as, as Matthew put it. So one thing I'd recognized right from the get-go was just like the Antioch teacher training program that I'm affiliated with in New Hampshire, uh, likewise, the high school teacher training program, I felt, had to be absolutely saturated in the arts. Hmm. Hmm. So unlike other programs where you basically go in and learn a bunch of stuff and how to teach the classroom and then get on and do it, we took the opposite view. Start not with the material, but start with yourself. Yeah. self and how do you develop yourself? Well, you develop yourself partly by doing things you don't like or don't know how to do. Right. And many teachers have no clue about artistic activities. Sometimes they're great, but as often as not, they don't. My favorite, though, is getting science teachers. Matthew, you might have been one of them. I don't remember exactly. But you were a wall of graduate. Probably you, you sailed through this part of the uh, assignment. <laughs> many, especially science and math teachers, really have no sense of how to put together uh, felt doll or do some handwork <laughs> nature. They can't knit, for example. We did knitting in first grade, but uh, coming out of, say, MIT and so forth, I wonder how many knitters they graduate. So, <laughs> our high school folks' handcrafts. Yeah. And that's how it began. You may remember that from your very first year, the very first human development course when mm -hmm. Sigma Modest talk about the kindergarten ostensibly it was about kindergarten oh no that wasn't the real reason the real reason was to get the students into some kind of practical uh, artistic activity and that then saturates the whole of the program and that's one thing i would say that was from the beginning was absolutely crucial that's one another thing i would add to that and then back to you um and that is that there was one course which i felt was important to offer very difficult to teach we had a very difficult time finding the right teachers, but we did find some. Uh, and this was a course that is intended to awaken inwardly in the trainees the kind of creative, um, imaginative, and yet organized way of seeing the world that allows you to teach this way. Very hard to teach that because, again, you're awakening something. You're not instructing it. This, uh, course, you remembered as living thinking. Mm -hmm. and from the mathematical tradition, from physics, from biology, they all had a go at it uh, with more or less degree of success. But the idea was the same, to develop inwardly through a study of the philosophy of freedom, primarily of Little Steiner's, to develop this capacity inwardly to become uh, creative and awake and open imaginative. Hmm. And the reason why that's so important, I have another quote I wanted to add, then you go back to you, uh, it comes from the, um, from the scientist Richard Feynman, uh, when he's talking about imagination, which, as you know, Einstein popular, uh, popularized as being the, the route to scientific inquiry. Uh, and it was Richard Feynman who says that our imagination, I'll read this for you, he said, our imagination is stretched to the utmost, not as in fiction, to imagine things which are not really there, 
but rather to comprehend just those things that really are there. Mm. That's what it does for the scientists, unlike the fiction writer. And to develop that capacity to awaken, this imaginative capacity to awaken inwardly, and therefore see the world, yes, possibly naively, but also that's, I would say, necessary for every Walter High School teacher. Mm. I remember in my teacher training, one of the most um, eye-opening classes I took was the speech, the speech work that we did, and how important our 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 voice and tone is into into what you know how to shape a class and how to draw out that the what the students are saying through how. I was talking and I remember my classmates, we didn't really understand the importance of speech. And I remember asking Carol Barkas, she came in after we had kind of terrorized our first speech teacher. And, and then she came in and said, you, you know, speech is your primary instrument. You need to practice using clear diction and your tone and liven up your tone and, and vary your tone so you don't put your students to sleep. And I think most of the lessons I learned in teacher training was focused on myself, mm -hmm. not the content, but who am I as a person and how I think I'm maybe leading into like this pedagogical law, as you said, like, I'm not trying to give a lesson. I'm trying to train myself to be basically a better listener and a better person so that the students can, can use me kind of as a sounding board or, or, or an echo chamber kind of thing. That's right. That, that's a very important point. Uh, and maybe to illustrate that for an example, then come more precisely to this notion of what the pedagogical law is. <clears throat> I can remember that uh, I, I was warned starting in high school teaching that when you start as a high school teacher, you may find that your best year is your first. Hmm. Because you're trading out of nervousness and you're trading out of enthusiasm, usually in a certain idealism, and you want to get it done and you want to cram it all in there and you really go at it. And the kids may not remember what you say, but they will be at least inspired by your energy. Enthusiasm for the work. And you're going to grade everything very quickly, in my case. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and never do it that quickly ever again. <laughs> there it is. So I started off, and after some years uh, having taught, then I had the opportunity to do some guest teaching in other schools. So it was a new setting, a new school, but then more familiar material. And it so happened that in the first year, uh, they, they asked me to teach a course, which I'd done several times physiology in ninth grade and luckily i was invited still the next year to come back and teach again but then they had a crisis in the school and the teacher who had taught um the odyssey fell out and i had to teach the odyssey at very short notice i'd never taught the odyssey before i'd studied it but i never, never taught it before least of all difficult 10th graders uh and so now i was in new york city and uh, I taught during the day, and then at night, I spent the time in Barnes and Noble and any number of places where I could find different translations of this very difficult Odyssey epic so that I had something to bring the next day. About halfway through the course, one of the 10th graders who had been, of course, a ninth grader the year before, he pulled me aside after the class and he said, um, um, last year, you really didn't like physiology much, did you? <laughs> it's my reaction because I love physiology, one of my favorite subjects. Said, really, why do you say that? But he said, by comparison to last year, this year you're so into it that it's in <laughs> and the other thing. And then the penny dropped. 
Yeah, it's not about what you know, it's what you've struggled to learn mm. that counts. Mm. Uh, and in that, yes, it is all about what you bring out of your humanity. And that does bring us then to this very interesting idea of what you call the pedagogical law, which as you will remember, Rudastani gave not to the wall of teachers, he gave this to the teachers who were working with specifically those students who were uh, disabled in various ways, either physically or in their capacities of, of education. And there he gave this really remarkable idea. And shall we go into this? Yes, absolutely. Yes, please. So this applies equally to preschool, kindergarten, lower school, even though you're working at a different developmental stage in cases of the kids. So, as you know, and again, you can do this very practically with people who have no idea what anthroposophy is or what these elements are. You know, it's enough to say to anybody that we all, I think, can agree that we all possess, we all have, we all inhabit a physical organism. There's no much argument about that. However, most people, I think just about everybody, would go further with you if you acknowledged that there's a difference between a physical organism that's alive and one that's dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The big difference is that when it's dead, it falls apart. Mm. Even with formaldehyde, eventually it falls apart. In other words, there's something going on in the living physical organism that really is more than simply the physical organism. Because when that, whatever that is, and different language for it, when that is not there or departs, the physical organism collapses. And that thing, whatever we call that force, that body, that being, that life, that energy, some people call it the life body, others call it the etheric body, sometimes call it the body of formative forces. So much, so much language for this. We kind of know we have it, but only kind of because it is actually unconscious. And thank God for that. If we were conscious of this force that gives life to our physical organism, we would be distracted and we would never be healthy. We have to let that do its thing. You know? And the best thing we can do, that this, this, this force, this body, this being, do its healthy work, is to sleep. And then you're totally unconscious. So, of the physical body, no argument. But most people will go along with the distinction between a physical dead body and a physical living body. And there we already have two aspects of the human being. Now we can go another step. Because there are moments when this living physical organism is awake and moments when it's not both in the daytime and in the nighttime. So we can acknowledge that as a reality. And we can recognize when it goes wrong, as a way of saying, well, if it goes wrong, it must be something that, that, that can go right. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. So that aspect of the human being, not just a physical material reality, not just a living physical material reality, but what you might call a sentient, that is conscious, aware, mm-hmm. physical reality. And that's sometimes at the end of the conversation. But if you pursue it, then you notice something else. That in nature, we normally speak about a mineral kingdom and a plant kingdom and an animal kingdom. Uh, and we recognize there are distinctions among the three. That is to say, animals can do things that plants can't do, and plants can do things that minerals mostly can't do. But nonetheless, if you focus in on the human being, if you're attentive, you may notice that there are things that the human being does that animals don't do and possibly possibly cannot do. I say possibly because there's always the question of pets. People have pets and they attribute to their pets human-like qualities and that's not surprising because animals begin to take on some of the characteristics of their mistresses. And 
they begin to be somewhat humanoid. However, there are, I think, distinctions that most people would accept. For example, I don't know of any animal that celebrates or knows to celebrate its birthday. Yeah. Yeah. They just don't have that consciousness. And that tells you something. It tells you that they have a different relationship to time. Then there's something else. Uh, sometimes, and rightly so, uh, people will say, well, uh, humans are just like animals, and animals are, are perfectly human. You talk about human capacity of imagination. Animals have all kinds of creative things. They do all sorts of things. They're very creative, very imaginative. Uh, to which one of my botany or actually biology friends said, well, yes, it's true. Um, take, for example, birds. Um, they are very creative. They actually can sing, some of them. They have beautiful voices. However, they sing only their national anthem. <laughs> in other words, there's a specialization there, but in the specialization is limitation. And that's, again, one way to characterize then the human, not to say greater than, but simply distinct from the animals, that the humans have a kind of flexibility even built into their physiology that animals, by, the large, by and large, do not. So, for example, take something as simple as this instrument, not much good for flying or climbing, or even hitting, but because of that, this organ has a flexibility which allows it then to, yes, take up a paintbrush, violin, use it in all kinds of ways that have never been used before. In that sense, originality to the creativity that animals are, are deprived of because they're so special. And so now we've arrived at the fourfold human being. I told you it took a bit of time. We've arrived at the fourfold human being in terms of a physical, a living physical, a sentient living physical, and now more than just sentient or conscious, self-conscious. And that's why you can have a different relationship to time. You can know your birthday is coming, or it has been, until you get older and you'd rather not remember that. <laughs> and other things you can do out of a self-awareness that goes beyond simply being aware. And sure, for the most part, we live very happily in our physical bodies, and we're happy that they're alive, and we're happy that we have consciousness, and we think that's that's fine. But there are moments, there are important moments, where we either are jolted into self-awareness or we yearn for self-awareness. And that brings us now to the pedagogical law. Because, as we know, if we if we accept this kind of, these sort of four aspects of human beings, sometimes more four she's, uh, if we accept as a kind of common sense or just uh, rooted in experience, not in anthroposophy now, but rooted in experience, then we can say the following, that these bodies, the physical one and the one that gives form and the one that gives consciousness and the one that self consciousness, they unfold in a certain kind of sequence and they don't all unfold at the same time. Take the extremes, take the physical organism. That unfolds first, in a way, First is to say it kind of finishes the job from the top down, you know, born mostly up here, huge head, must have been kind of pitiful. And then gradually over, well, how many years is it? Over a good number of years, you begin to develop this part of the middle part, heart changes, grows much bigger, harder, stronger, lungs expand, then come sexual organs, and then it's with it. In other words, the body, the physical body, develops in a certain sequence from the top down. Mm -hmm. What is true of that body, this physical organism, is also then can be seen in the other bodies as well, the life body, the super body of sensations or consciousness, and then ultimately self-conscious. Notice that the self-consciousness comes last. You're not born with that. 
thank goodness. Imagine if you were born with consciousness in the channel coming into life. You would never be born. <laughs> you would say, I'll, oh. I'll stay here, please. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to go out that door. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's way too scary an experience if it's conscious. All right. So in that sense, we can imagine these, these different aspects of ourselves developing in a kind of sequence. And just as you grow from the top down, you never know. I know of no single human being who grows from the feet and then finally finishes the head. No, the head down. Having said that, the question is, how long does it take to finish the job, even here? And now we have research. God bless we have research. It used to be only pretty. But now we have actual research to show that this, even this part of the body, which is supposed to be finished and certainly has developed most first, even this part of the body takes about 23 years to finish its job. Mm. The convolutions of the, especially the, uh, the corpus callosum here and also the prefrontal lobes, these take the longest to develop, and they're there from the beginning. Don't get me wrong, you're born with them, but they're not developed until your early, or even mid 20s. The only company that I know is familiar with this are the car insurance companies. They know yep. absolutely that until you're 23, they say 25 to be on the safe side. Until you're in mid 20s, you're not really fully adult. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Car rental companies. Exactly. So now we have the insurance to prove to us what, as common sense we know, it takes that long. All right, so now back to the pedagogical law. Inasmuch as the preschool years, where the child is developing most intensely this physical organism, on the way down, not finished, but nonetheless on the way down, there the teacher teaches working, as they say, one body further along. Not working out of his or her physical organism now, but working out of her or his life body. How do you teach out of your life body? That is so difficult mm -hmm. because you can't use language or gesture or emotions or consciousness because the life body works without those things. So how do you teach with your life body? You teach out of your life body by the way you hold yourself, the way you hold your posture, how you gesture, how you stand up. I can't do it because I'm a high school teacher. But if I were a kindergarten teacher working with the preschool years, then I would learn how to levitate myself without appearing to push strongly against gravity to get up. <laughs> but what for kindergarten teachers? They seem to levitate somehow, and they have a buoyancy in their movement and the way they walk through the classroom. Not arrogant, not at all. It's very humble. But nonetheless, a certain kind of lightness, a buoyancy, and they've trained that because they're working to teach the children through their life body. And all the habits and all the health that goes with life body, that is the medium through which you can teach the lower school. And that's with rhythm too, right? And telling the same story over and over again. The etheric body, the life body loves repetition. Mm -hmm. I made the huge mistake once of babysitting a young child, the high school teacher. And because in high school, variety is the spice of life, uh, <laughs> One night, and the next night I came back with a whole different version of the story with more details. I got halfway through the story, the kid cut me off. He says, no, it was like so last night. Tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, life body, life body. They, they love, they need repetition. So you, so you finally learn these things. 
Uh, yeah, so you're right about that. So now we move on uh, to the lower school because again, that continues this teaching out of your habit and your life and your health. But now something else is needed uh, in the lower school because now, says Rudolf Steiner, the children are beginning to develop their life body in the ways that they would develop physical organism preschool years. So now they're developing good habits and health and hygiene, all the things that go with the lower school, uh, more than the preschool years. And so now the teacher, again, has to stay one step ahead, shall we say, through the development and use and teaching via then what's called the soul body, sometimes called the body of desire or the feeling body or the astral body, all kinds of things, this idea of your soul life. And how do you teach out of your soul life? Teach through imagination or through events. That's why the lower school is just saturated, saturated with stories and drawings and plays and all these things of the arts. That way, then the lower school child can learn out of this artistic sense of the high school teacher. And finally, then we come to the high school, almost the end, to the high school, where now in the adolescent years, yes, the soul life of the teenager now really blossoms, and we all know what that means, especially in now, and the mistake of the teacher is to stay teaching out of his or her soul body. Because if you teach out of your emotional life and your feelings and an imagination of what enthusiasm is there, but if you teach out of your imagination, they will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Better at it. Yeah, their life really is in blades in this. And if you try to work in that level, you just it's like it's like trying to it's like trying to run after an athlete. You just can't <laughs> keep up. So again, the high school teacher has to know this pedagogical law one step further. And what is the one step beyond the physical or living physical or sentient conscious living physical organism? It is the sense of self, self-consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, there was a colleague of mine who taught in a different teacher training program, and he said that the secret for the high school teacher is to learn to teach out of your I voice rather than your astral voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, the astral voice it has its moments, but the teaching, the standing comes out of the sense of I in the high school, especially in the high school, of course, in the lower school too, but especially in the sense of, of the high school. And if you do that, then you are, one again, one step ahead of the blossoming of the soul life of the teenager, and you can teach and, in a sense, be accepted by the teenager because you're moving out of one body further along. <laughs> That's half the story. Another half the story is for another seminar. Yeah. But the point is getting these four bodies ever more physically centered until you become an adult, and then you can learn a whole bunch more. Did you did you find that coming from your college, you know, um, teaching and coming into the high school that you were very much in your ego um, teaching body as you stepped into teaching high school, or did this, was that something you had to learn? Well, it's it's a bit of a human tragedy uh, because if you think about the physical body, that's uh, that's a pretty developed thing, you know. It'll, it'll behave pretty well. Don't mess it up. Then it'd be fine. Uh, the same is true largely of the, of the life body. If you don't tax it too much, sometimes it gets excessive and does this and that, but essentially, the life body is pretty wise. And especially if you sleep a lot, it'll be fine. When you get to the soul body, that's a little younger. Hmm. That's like a teenager. Uh, that can cause problems. And you sometimes have to play the role of Plato, you know, the charioteer, hold, hold those horses in a little bit. Mm. Uh, that, that soul body can be a bit reckless. And the eye, it's a baby. Mm. It's a, 
very, very young. He's barely coming into existence, far less maturity. Even as an old person, you're still struggling to find the I voice. It's so easy to slip back into this astral voice. So to teach out of the eye is not something you come equipped with. Mm. That is what you, that's what you acquire in a full life on earth. Yeah. You need one at least, probably more, but you need at least one good life on earth to develop, to some degree, to develop this maturity of the sense of I. So high school teachers have to grow up. They have to be the adults in the room. Carry mm-hmm. mm. but to be centered or to be, in that sense, balanced. Be a person with some kind of balance. I did always get the sense as a high school teacher that there was this kind of unspoken question from the students of like, who are you? You know, who who are you? Mm. And and I remember having that as as a high school student of really I remember looking at my high school teachers and for the first time in my life having the foresight to recognize that this person in front of me is a living iteration of what a life could be, right? This, this, they are a prototype for, for a life, right? And, and I will someday have a life. And so I, there was just this shift in how I looked at the adults around me and especially the teachers as, you know, this aspect of who this person is, this, this quality they bring with them to the classroom is something that I aspire to. Or something I, you know, very intentionally do not want to emulate, right? But it was it was definitely a perspective shift between how I viewed my class teacher and how then I, as a 14-year-old, looked at my high school teachers. There was a real distinct shift. And I felt that then from the other side as a teacher as well. That's correct. Uh, I noticed that very often in the high school, there are certain teachers who almost have an unfair advantage of being popular. There's sometimes uh, the driver's ed instructor <laughs> really know something very practical and they really can help you there and you can save your life, but they're practical. Hmm? And they often don't preach, they don't tell you what to do, they don't scold you, they don't kick you out of the car if you, if you show up late, they just, get, just get on with it. Very practical. They're one. Uh, often coaches are highly admired for a similar reason. They have high discipline, self, uh, self-discipline as well. Uh, and they, they demand a lot of you, and they pull it out of you. And you admire that because essentially they are working on you out of who they are. And then, of course, occasionally you have these master teachers, so-called masters, miss and misnomer, but they're these wonderful teachers who are just in themselves, and they just, they, they just uh, they speak the world. And in that sense, they yes, they promise a prototype, and they promise a future to someone who doesn't yet fully have him or herself in him or herself. It would it would seem to be that as you got older as a teacher, you would be more and more fit to teach high school in a way that you you've learned more and more to to teach out of your 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 I voice as we we're saying. But I've also noticed that it tends to be that the older teachers become kindergarten teachers, and it's the young teachers that tend to gravitate towards the high school. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't. It just seems so that there's a there's a shift there that I can't quite understand at the moment because it seems like as you as you grow older you tend to then teach younger and younger students. That, that's a wonderful observation. I think it's, it's very true. It may relate to the fact that the more uh, skilled you are at teaching, 
more you are able to teach to younger children. Mm-hmm. Novice, you can kind of mess around and get away with it in high school. If you really screw up, teach in college. But <laughs> <laughs> it was fairly forgiving, although they were rude at the time. But, you know, you're allowed mistakes. Going to the lower school, it becomes more serious. Uh, and if you mess up there, it really could have lifelong effects. But if you screw up in kindergarten, that is a kind of death sentence for the students. Mm-hmm. So Stein describes it very concretely. He says, the way the kindergarten teacher teaches, that is through this life forces, that's for the habits and all that, that capacity, that capacity of teaching through your life forces, that goes so deeply into the children it actually helps to shape their physical organs. Mm-hmm. If you even take that half seriously, that makes the kindergarten a highly advanced teacher because advanced human being, and it's a scary assignment that the way I teach, again, not what I say, but the way I behave, the way in the way I gesture, that out of my gestures, the children will be helped or not helped in their physical organic growth for life. Mm. Yeah. So I do, I do reserve my highest reserve and, 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 and admiration for kindergarten teachers because they are really teaching at the deepest because highest level. Mm. I, I'm, I'm so curious to hear about, you know, not only your work with training teachers, but your work with Waldorf high schools in general, especially Waldorf high schools in the United States. Could you talk a little bit maybe about from your perspective, kind of maybe a, a, a state of the union, right, of, of Waldorf High Schools now? What maybe what are you seeing? How do you how do you feel about the work that's being done? I don't I don't know if you could give maybe a, a broad overview of some of your perceptions of how especially Waldorf High Schools are meeting the challenges of the world right now. Well, the interesting thing to, to talk about here. Um, this came up in a conference recently of Waldorf teachers from around the world, and they were talking about technology. Mm. They were noticing the fact that a lot of parents are coming now to Waldorf schools so that they don't have to have all the uh, accoutrements of technology from first grade onwards. As you know, lower schools are low tech by design. So here the parents who are supporting Waldorf education because they don't have much or don't have as much technology. These same parents, this teacher was relating, these same parents who flock to the school in first grade because there's no cell phones in the classroom, they're beating on the desks of the teacher by fifth grade, where's the technology? Hmm. In other words, the, the mentality changes from recognizing the value of being liberated from the distractions of technology to insisting that the children have this technology. And you might ask, why is that? And you know, there are many reasons, but on the, on the surface you can say the parents... On the one hand, they see in the kindergarten, even the first and second grade, a kind of oasis that is a little bit cosmic. Hmm. It's it's liberated from all the turbulence of of the day-to-day. And kids either can ignore it or if they are affected by it, it's traumatic. They, in a certain sense, they need in this certain kind of sheath, a certain kind of gesture of of universality, shall we say, protected from the distractions of the modern world. By the time they're adults, they better be totally tuned into this reality, otherwise they won't make it in the world. Hmm. There's the transition. Hmm. Yeah. Transition. There's a there's an abstract answer and then there's a real answer. The abstract answer is when should the transition be? 
when you're fully adult. When are you fully adult? Early 20s. That's the ideal answer. That's not the real answer because you know how that is. Long before you are fully mature, you want to be in the world. And so you should. I can remember when I was a kid, uh, my parents used to go out from occasion and I was at those days you would stupid leave your children alone at home. You can't do that now, but you can get arrested if you do that. Uh, but in those days you could do that. And so when I was alone in the house, I had one particular passion as a, as a young child, sort of maybe lower school. I loved climbing into my father's formal uh, gear. <laughs> hmm. Those days they had tails, walk around the house. <laughs> <laughs> This was the young child yearning for adult life. You see, that's right. In the safety of your home, of course, but nonetheless, yearning for adult life. That's right. But the mistake is then to reward it. Mm -hmm. mm. And then say, okay, we'll give you a top hat. We'll give you tails. You can walk around. No, you would never do that. But on the other hand, when it comes to technology and cell phones, there's a temptation because the kids are yearning for it, as they should, because they're yearning for it to give it to them early. So I would say in terms of the, the state of the nation, as you might call it, uh, we're up against this issue. The issue that the ideals of all of education are so attractive in kindergarten and first grade that those ideals draw people in. But then people get scared and they worry, will my kid make it? Will he make it in the world? Frankly, long before they need it, they then begin to get these technological devices, for example, and other things to do with modern technology, which at that age actually introduce uh, anxiety mm -hmm. as opposed to confidence. And if parents were a little bit more aware of that, they might not be quite so anxious to knock on the door and get the teachers to allow technology in the classrooms. So one struggle I do see in the world of high school is around technology. Some have been remarkably courageous. Uh, there's a school that's recently advertised. You can read about it in worldoftoday.com. They decided no cell phones, not even in the high school. Mm -hmm. They did it in a smart way. They got the students buy-in first. That was a good idea. Yeah. And that's the students recognized the advantage to that. And, there, and all kinds of practical reasons why this is a good idea, by the way. They saw the advantage of that, and therefore, because the students were in on the game, shall we say, this could happen. And the school will see how this is an experiment. We'll see how it works. But I'm expecting it'll be a success story. Mm. So that's, that's one thing I would say in terms of the nation of the struggle we're up against. Uh, there was a, a survey, this was not in America, but in England, there was a survey of uh, Wall of Parents. They were asked to come up with the um, most appropriate adjective to describe Wall of Education and their experience in Wall of School. And the most commonly chosen adjective was soft. Hmm. Hmm. That's a wonderful way to advertise kindergarten. Yeah. Lousy way to advertise high school. Yeah, high school soft. Yeah. yeah. In other words, it's something that changes in the education and should do so. However, the trouble is that sometimes in letting go of soft, then the emphasis becomes on hard. Yeah. Mm. It's good. But hard also has its limitations. And hardness without anything else attached to it becomes sclerosis. And I see that a lot now in our times. We have young people who are prematurely old, not in terms of their maturity, it's the opposite. They're staying younger longer, uh, but rather in their physiology. And we see this now right the way down into the preschool uh, years with onset of diabetes and other sort of sclerotic conditions that normally are associated with the second half of life on earth, not with infancy and young children. 
But still, that's probably happening. And that hardening, that kind of sclerotic pressure from our society, I think, uh, uh, does a lot of um, does a lot to hinder what Wallace schools are trying to do. Yeah, I have a question. Um, so one of the things that I experienced with um, Oliver, who entered first grade in the public school this year, um, he was given a, a, a computer, a, um, a Chromebook. Um, and the, you know, the kindergartens, kindergartners received iPads and his class received Chromebooks. And before I before he received his Chromebook, I quickly ran and I wanted to give him his fountain pen because I was anticipating a Waldorf education and I wanted him to, you know, start to learn how to do his handwriting and, and, and cursive writing before he um, received his computer. And I, I feel like that is a very um, dangerous, it, it, well, it's just a very, I don't know even how to, maybe I should not put a value judgment on it, but to learn how to type before you learn how to handwrite seems to me very backwards. And I'm just, um, I'm just wondering what you think about that. What about, you know, handwriting cursive, you know, what, what, what purpose does that serve for a student of today? We have a whole research project going on this subject and the research institute that I run. Uh, what is happening with cursive and what's, the problem here, uh, what's the advantage? Um, and we hope in about a year's time to have some sort of publication on this subject. So what's, what's fascinating to find out, first of all, is there was a book written by someone extolling the virtues of technology and all the systems that go into writing the uh, computer and so forth. In an interview, he then admitted that he wrote the book longhand. Mm. <laughs> and he was asked about that. He said, well, if I write longhand, then the ideas I have, I can kind of link one idea to the next, and I develop a certain kind of coherence of logic and argument and examples mm. more persuasive and more artistic, frankly, more literary than if I type. That was my experience, by the way, also in graduate school. I had two typewriters. Uh, well, I had two machines. There was no computer in those days. Uh, I wrote my dissertation longhand, and next to me I had a typewriter for the footnotes. And if I wanted to write a footnote in a certain kind of style, I typed it out on no computer in those days. I typed it out on the typewriter, but the actual manuscript, the actual dissertation was was written, was handwritten, and I could tell the difference in my own processes. So that's the, the one thing to say about the cursive. It does develop cognitive, even physiologically, it develops a cognitive capacity uh, which doesn't come through typing. Um, there's more to the story, but maybe I, I, I leave it there, except to say that if you think about learning, specifically the learning of language and writing, notice that the first thing that you learn, you learn through pictures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so pictures. Now out of the pictures, then you can begin to discern forms which then can be precipitated into letters. And that's exactly then how the Wallace schools teach writing. You start with the story, imagination of a mountain and somebody running up a mountain or down a mountain and then come pictures on the board with the contours of the mountains and the M's of the mountains that are out there and then after very slow time you begin to extract this abstract shape of the mountain as opposed to the story of the mountain and the mountainous landscape and then they practice M's. Now that's a kind of classic example of moving from picture through story through picture into abstract symbol. Of course, you can 
written symbol is still somewhat pictorial because the movement is engaged in it just as it is in a drawing. Whereas if you move to typing, that's a further step, a further abstraction from the movement of the letters. Uh, and it has its moment and it should come certainly in the curriculum. The question is when is it developmentally most helpful and when does it get in the way? I'm struck by thinking about the relationship between Waldorf high schools and technology. And I'm wondering if, you know, I, I always think back to, you know, Steiner and the steam engine, right? Of, you know, the, the student should, and I'm totally paraphrasing, but that a student should move through the world and understand the workings behind the technology that surrounds them. Because if they do not understand how these things work, then they will they will become the tools of the technology rather than being able to use the technology as tools. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, I know I have observed for myself in, you know, in my relationship with a lot of this really advanced, you know, computer smartphone technology that especially with our students, I find that one of the problems that I'm seeing is that their parents do not understand and that their parents are, in fact, more at the whim of this technology and the, and than the students. The students are almost born with a slight edge of consciousness or consciousness around it to where they almost are a little bit more savvy than the parents who are the who are just totally at the whim of these technologies. And so I'm wondering, as people who are educating young people in Waldorf schools, you know, is is our calling then to to dive deeper into coding? Is our calling to to dive deeper into maybe the 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 math and the literal flipping of the X's and O's, the you know, the zeros and ones behind these devices? Is that maybe a path forward? I'm just curious about what you see as maybe a possibility to help young people move through the world with a clear understanding of what is the goings on behind these things that are so consuming so that then I can have a truthful relationship with this thing that's in front of me. That's the key word. You mentioned it yourself. The word, the key word is behind. What is behind all this? That's in, 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 in sort of the lingo of education is called the phenomenological approach. Just trying to get to the phenomena of things uh, rather than getting caught up in the abstract uh, explanation of things, which could, you could also do. So with regard say, to the computers, you're absolutely right. The younger folks are more tuned into it. They were born into it. They are not, in that sense, uh, foreign to it. Now the question is, in working with, with youngsters, um, it's so important that they come to their own understanding of what's going on rather than buying what their parents or older people tell them. Mm -hmm. Right about that, older people of an older mindset are simply imposing an old and often by now incorrect model on what the phenomena are actually saying. So in that sense, for example, <laughs> uh, you can have people who try to describe the computer as in terms of a mechanical device. It's not. It's not mechanical. Or it's barely mechanical. There are very few moving parts, in other words. There's something else going on. You have to understand electricity in a very deep way if you want to understand the computer. And the, 
and electricity does not lend itself to materialistic thinking, although we try. Yeah. He was my dentist, finally, who persuaded me of this, because I had to go in for a root canal, and he described the pain that's going on in the, in, the, in the nerves there. And he said, well, you know, it's like electricity, and it's actually somewhat electrical. But he said the difference is that there's nothing going through the nerve. We talk about this, but he said there's nothing going, there's no substance going through the nerve. There's an electrical charge around the nerve. That's there. You can measure that. And that measurement can change from most positive to negative. And moreover, that change can be seen to move down a wire or down a nerve. But don't make the mistake, don't make the mistake of thinking there's current. Again, another metaphor. There's no water flowing through the, <laughs> the wires. Mm -hmm. There's charge around the wires. That's what's going on. And the analogy he used, which was helpful for me to understand this distinction, was he said, you know, in the old days and in, in, in Times Square, there used to be a building more or less shaped like a wedge of cheese. Hmm. He also taken his place, but it was there for a long time. And it was distinctive because around the crown of this building, there were uh, headlines moving around. Mm -hmm. However, if you actually looked carefully, there was nothing, no thing, no substance moving. There were lights flashing on and off in different patterns, yeah. and the patterns moved. Yeah, not the substance, not the light bulbs. Hmm. He said that's the way to understand electricity. It's not about stuff moving around the top of the building. It's charge, and that's an electrical charge that is in movement. Mm -hmm. That pattern, that pattern of movement, that's what's information, and that's what's at work in the computer. And to understand that is already a huge step forward from imagining what most people think computers to be, with somehow a genie in the back there, you know, <laughs> telling you what to do. <laughs> that's the old model by now, but you get the idea. To come to a real understanding of the computer is essential for the teenager, but they have to understand what is happening, and not the old classical, in a sense, electrical classical models being imposed on a very modern phenomenon. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So you started the, the teacher training program and um, you are soon to retire from the being executive director. Um, I'm wondering what you see your, your next steps to be. Well, I mean, one of the steps would be to try and give a better answer to the question that, that came before. Uh, because I'm not sure I really answered your question there before. <laughs> hey, the, we'll we'll have many conversations to come, I'm sure. Okay. So I'll just I'll give one crack at that and then go to Matthew's question. Um, because in, in in regard to your question, Taylor, about the sort of state of the, the war of nation at the moment and some of the some of the challenges we face, I think there is something else going on, and that is <clears throat> akin to this notion of the parents, you know, coming for the uh, safety from technology and then beating the doors for it by the time you get to the middle school years. In the high school, there's something similar happening, and that uh, I'm going to see. And that is that when Rudolf Steiner spoke about the high school, he said, one thing that's really important for the high school, unlike the lower school and especially unlike the kindergarten, where there's a kind of cosmic universality, you can go to any Waldorf kindergarten anywhere and you can identify from the silks almost immediately, ah, this is a Waldorf kindergarten, beeswax, it's got to be a Waldorf kindergarten. <laughs> Know that in the high school, he says it's got to be the opposite. The high school, each one needs to be as different as possible from the other ones. Why? Because in the kindergarten, you're living in this ideal sense, universal cosmic all. And by the high school, you have to feel that you're absolutely embedded in what Rudastana called your social community. Hmm. 
all our communities by definition will be different. They should be, otherwise they're not social. And so whereas the kindergarten can enjoy this you know, silk, silk universality, the high schools need to be really distinctly different. And frankly, one of the problems I see in the world of high schools is too many high schools are imitating each other, either imitating other high schools or worse, the other independent schools or even public schools. And then they do things that other schools and they let go what is perhaps the unique genius of the wall of education. So what am I going to do in the next part of my life? Well, I'm going to advocate for wall of education at the high school level, but let them be walled off schools, not wall of imitating something else schools. Yeah. Let them be. And so for me, I'm saying the strength of the schools lies in us being, in our being ourselves. Uh, and the correspondingly, the challenge is uh, that we are afraid of ourselves or maybe haven't quite awoken to ourselves because there are aspects of all of education, as, as I hinted at earlier, there are aspects of all of education which I think are so radical or so revolutionary that they're either too scary or they're too underground. And we haven't really dug in deeply enough to find out what actually can be possible in a wall of high school would be utterly different from what other folks are doing. Hmm. So for your question, uh, Matthew, uh, that's one thing I intend to do. The other thing I intend to do is I will keep my sort of hat on with the, with the Institute for Water Education, so in that sense, promoting these will be ongoing. And then there's one more project I have in mind, and that is that, um, oh my goodness, maybe 30 years ago, um, I met with uh, the mentor I mentioned earlier, John Gardner, who was my sort of lead teacher in the Garden City School, and I was there. And periodically, I went back to visit him. And on one of the visits, we had the idea that uh, because he had been a very prolific writer, uh, that we should gather up some of his less known, less known essays and put them out as a book. And I agreed to try and make that happen. I got busy, he got busy, then he died, and the project never really got off the ground. But it's been sitting on my, my bookshelf there for mm. three decades. And now I have uh, the wherewithal and soon the time to see that that actually happens and I can fulfill my promise to my mentor that these essays will be edited and they will be published. I hope they may even be read. Oh, wow. Beautiful. I, I wonder if maybe, um, you know, moving toward wrapping up, if you could talk a little bit about, you, you referenced a few things that the Research Institute is currently exploring if there are any other topics of research that maybe have come out recently or, or questions you're currently pursuing that you would be interested in sharing. There's maybe one which we kind of hinted at along the way, but I think it's worth lifting out uh, because this for me is a huge area of research and it is timely. People are waking up to it and it's got to happen. It has to do with this. Um, in a lecture, I think it was, that Rodostana gave as early as 19... Um, he spoke about what he called a modern epidemic. He called it an epidemic of nervousness. And he said, this is now before World War I, he said, this is going to get much worse before it gets any better. So get ready for it. We're going to have more and more generations of young people, by extension, young people getting older, who will be suffering increasingly the epidemic of nervousness in his language. Today, we call that anxiety, we call it depression, we call it other things as well. But I think we now are living in an age which he was describing a century ago. So the first thing I would say is we need to recognize this age of anxiety for what it is. Why are we so scared? Why is there so much anxiety increasingly among young people? With consequences, some of them quite tragic, number one. 
Number two, there are different kinds of anxiety, which I won't go into right now, but that helps to distinguish a bit to get the phenomena clear. But once we've established that, then the next question is, well, how does one deal with anxiety? How does one manage anxiety? And at the risk of sounding oversimplistic, but when you get to, get to be my age, that's almost allowed, at the risk of that being oversimplified, the possibly number one response, I can't say antidote, but the number one response to anxiety is movement. Mm -hmm. When you move, if you move, you're less anxious. And if you're scared, you don't move so much. That goes, they kind of go together. Hmm. Now, you can move into excess, that's another story. But for the moment, in an age of anxiety, we need an education that's based on movement. But I mean movement in three levels, or maybe even four levels, but three for the moment, three levels. I mean physical movement. I mean that these, and you guys did it and do it in your schools uh, because you were partly asked to do so. Uh, with our encouragement. But you know then the importance of even beginning the school day in movement, not just in lower school, that's kind of there, but even in the high school years and your, the schools you mentioned have done some of that. And so uh, a curriculum that is much more conscious of the merits of movement, I think is needed, number one. But number two, movement, luckily in our language, we have not only movement in a physical sense, we have also movement in the word emotion that is in the emotional sense. That's also a kind of movement. And there also we have a certain kind of anxiety, sometimes expressed as paralysis, uh, fear at the level of feeling. And again, there's a lot that education can do to heal or to get that anxiety, that fear, that paralysis into movement through imagination and arts. I mean, we talked about this in different ways already in this session. So for me then, movement at the soul level, uh, primarily through the arts, is again part of our task of, of modern education. And then, wouldn't you know it, there is that third level, beyond physical movement or psychological or soul movement, there is the question of spiritual movement. I think I'm safe in saying that at the moment, we are living at a time of spiritual paralysis. By that I mean people polarized in positions and unable to reach because they're so stuck in where they are in their thinking, in, their, in that sense, in their spiritual life, also their soul life, but especially their spiritual life. And here again, I think we can introduce through education tremendous healing if we imagine education as being not just a healing art, but being an art of movement, not just physical, not just soul, but also spiritual movement. And that for me would be my great hope for the next generations, that we actually wake up and move up into an education based on motion and not simply on paralysis, because it is through motion that everything, without exception in the plant world, the animal kingdom, even the rocks, nothing grows, nothing flourishes unless it moves. So for us to be healthy, we're going to have to develop an education that is constantly in movement. It kind of goes right back to eurythmy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, as a little coda to that, um, in this survey of Eurythmy, we asked the question I mentioned before, uh, what was the uh, subject that you would least dislike to now see differently, Eurythmy number one. Then we had anecdotes of people coming to comment. One sticks out for me in particular, actually two. One says, I'm a professional hockey player, and I've yet to be hit by a puck because <laughs> in the backspace, I know what's coming. And somebody else said, I, my, my job is I run uh, uh, professional services in New York City on a bicycle. I deliver things by bicycle so rush our traffic. I've yet to have an accident wow. because of my risk. I know the brown space. Uh, 
So in that sense, the sense of the whole, the sense of the round, not, not just movement now, but movement in the whole, in the wholeness of it all, yes, eurythmy is by far the most effective technique to develop that capacity. And I almost think singing, singing in groups together, you know, I mean, we we talk uh, about the things that we were that we took so rhythmically for granted being in a Waldorf community and now to have that suddenly gone this year that that groups singing together and that, you know, the, that first you tr you try and sing right yourself, but then you become aware of, of everyone else around you and then you start modulating your voice to blend. And and then there's this moment where you just get to listen and behold it. And I, I think of that both the kind of the soul emotional movement and the kind of spiritual movement of this this swinging out of the paralysis of being stuck in oneself, right? And this collective whole coming together. I think that um, that singing together kind of falls under that category for me as well. You're absolutely right about that. And especially in the two aspects, yeah. that one in the sense that when you sing, as you said rightfully, you really have to kind of sing into the group and feel where the group is. And as the group goes flat, you go flat with the group. Otherwise, you're actually hurting the sound. You're not helping it. Yep. Same with the rhythm. Go, go with the rhythm. All right. But that's half the story. Because if you do that too successfully and you lose yourself, you forget what you're singing. Mm -hmm. And now you're singer because you've forgotten the where, where you are in the in the piece and you have to wake up to yourself and sing so to be able to sustain and that's the paradox to sustain simultaneously two kinds of consciousness that are otherwise contradictory the sense of the periphery and the sense of your own center simultaneously that is the work of imagination yeah and that's what we brain in the high school, specifically when imagination is not just drawing things and being artistic, it's developing a certain kind of consciousness that can be, shall I say, in two places at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a real, that's the beautiful challenge pre presented to high school teachers, because we do live in a time of conviction. We live in a time of polarization. We live in a time where in our own lives, in our own communities, we are so pressured to be as solidly certain as we possibly can and yet i think as high school teachers in a way we almost have to set that aside when we walk into the classroom right that there's this element of 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 really maintaining this this kind of this little bit of flex like of maintaining flexibility in working with high school students because it is it was amazing to me to hear from them how quickly and almost how how relieved they were when it was a really easy um that person is bad they were like oh okay that's done they're bad excellent we can move on and and i think it's so tempting for us to carry those convictions from our own life into the classroom and yet i could immediately see in those moments where this is actually not serving them right and and they just took this one idea just just calcified right this that became a, a checked box that they have no reason to go back and revisit or to digest further when it was so easily written off as done and i see that kind of being one of the challenges presented to to us as high school teachers because we live in the world right we we have families we have friendships we exist in society with other adults we are just 
we are in the thick of it. And yet when the, we come into the classroom, I see there's, there is this higher calling of, of, of bringing that flexibility of thinking to our students that for some people, I think can be very taxing because it, it is so contrary to kind of what you're talking about of this, this kind of paralysis, this, this polarization. Right. I mean, ideally, and when you go into the classroom, the students should have no idea how you vote in the booth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to say that you're people that you're you're a, you're a kind of a ne'er do well or you're a nihilist. Or no, it's just, they just can't figure that out. Yeah. Right. Isn't that like the so that's the ego voice, right? You're standing in the center of the, of the balance. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh. You're, sorry, you're standing in the center, and you're, in a sense, by standing in the center, you're standing a little bit beyond any ballot. Yeah. Yeah. Well. We've gone almost two hours. This has been incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Douglas, for t- having this conversation with us. Any, any final thoughts? Any questions for us before we go? Well, I have a bunch of questions, but maybe they will come off, off camera there. <laughs> For the, for the purpose of this, first of all, let me say how much I've enjoyed being with you again and having you talk about the conversation. Maybe I talk too much around the corners here, but it's great to have you here oh. in the in the quiet of discourse uh, and to know that you're actually asking the right questions because the questions you pose are exactly the questions that need to be posed of Wall of Education today. And that may just bring me to a, a closing thought uh, about Wall of Education um, because sometimes Wall of Education is identified, again, to talk of this polarization, sometimes Wall of Education is itself identified with a pole. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that pole is, to use kind of quick language, left-leaning, sometimes even right-leaning. We have some strange bedfellows in both uh, bed beds by now. Uh, and very easily does Wall of Education then get either locked into one or the other or simply branded as one or the other. And yet, I think if we look at what Wall of Education is really doing, it is offering something that doesn't quite fit the matrix. It doesn't fit the boxes. It doesn't fit the pillars. And that's a problem. Because if you don't fit into the poles, people do one or two things. Either they try and assign you one, maybe arbitrarily, or they write, they write you off. Mm-hmm. You're not in the pole. You're not, you don't exist because you're not in a pole. You can't be identified in one or other polarity. Um, and so for Wall of Education, I think, to find is its voice is going to have to to work in a way that is able to get beyond this polarization without being caught in it, to get beyond it, but without letting it go. That's the other problem. You get beyond it, and then you're out in some kind of, uh, I don't know, cosmic zone land, uh, and nobody listens because there's no oxygen to carry your voice. So what is the solution to that? I don't know the answer, but I do know this. There's fascinating research, I hope to be able to get into it later on. There's fascinating uh, research out there to show that when you have a, a system that's based on three, it is always unstable, but it is successful as long as it stays in motion. Hmm. Like the thing, yeah? If you turn the top up on a pyramid, it's st- stable there. It doesn't move, but it's stable turn it on its head, and it falls over, unless you spin it. Hmm. Therefore, for me, the secret for Wall of Education is going to be not that we get caught in this or that or try and get beyond this or that or try and reconcile opposites. That's a nice thing, but it's not going to work. No, what's going to work for Wall of Education is if we are able to spin the top. 
Now, what do I mean by spinning the top? What I mean by spinning the top is that you introduce, again, the phrase movement, you introduce the human motion into whatever the phenomenon is. And that's true for computers, it's true for anything else. Now, so easily we assign personality to the computer, Alexa, and <laughs> There are no personalities there. Mm-hmm. Where's the personality? It's here. That's where the personality is. And if we can identify where the personality is, where the persona is, then I think we can begin to speak with some kind of practical advice because ultimately I think everybody wants to connect to other human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, if you want a, you want a closing image for that, I, I don't want to advertise the school, but there's a school called the Waller School on the Roaring Fork. There's a 12 or 30 minute video based on the metaphor of connecting. And it starts with the teacher and the handshake of the kid coming through the door. And then it's a series of wonderful metaphors for how through education you're developing connecting. Mm. And I would say that's saying the same thing about getting beyond the polarities. It's finding this human connection because in the connection, that's where the healing can come about. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Beautifully said. Well, maybe we'll conclude our recording there. Douglas Gerwin, thank you so much for being with us thank here you. today. Great pleasure. Thank you, both of you. This concludes another episode of Hard Beeswax. Thanks for listening. For episodes and more, visit our website at hardbeeswax.transistor.fm. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, or you can always email us at hardbeeswax at gmail.com. Hard Beeswax would not be possible without the expertise and time of Andy Smith, our producer and sound whisperer, who has been our hype man from the beginning. And lastly, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in with us and sharing in the absolute magic brought by our guests. Your support means the world to us. You have our utmost gratitude.